Please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn again to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, page 1007 in the Blue Pew Bible. Chapter 10, we'll be looking at verse 23 to 25. I'll begin reading at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we looked at verses 19 to 22 of chapter 10, and there we saw the writer uh, exhorting us to draw near to God. He sort of sums up everything that came before in the previous chapters, everything he said about why we are now able to draw near to God. Everything he said about Jesus Christ and his perfection, his perfect person and his perfect finished work of redemption. It's the only reason we can draw near to God is that we have this great Savior. And the writer says, therefore, in light of this, in light of Christ, this great Redeemer that we have, and in light of the the full confidence that we have to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus— and the cleansing of our sins that he's provided for us, now let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We're to live our lives that way. We're to live our lives drawing near to God, privately and corporately as we gather in worship. We're to draw near to God and receive his grace, to be strengthened in prayer and in fellowship with God. What an awesome thing this is. What an awesome privilege we have as God's people to possess Uh, these possessions of full, unhindered access to God through our advocate. We have the access because we have the advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's encouraging us to draw near to God, keep drawing near to God, always. And next here we see another exhortation uh, given by the writer. This exhortation uh, really flows from the previous one. If we do draw near to God, we will be strengthened and we will be more inclined to heed this next exhortation, which is an exhortation to persevere in the hope that we have. Persevere in hope. Verse 23, the writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the writer's speaking, uh, he's spoken of our faith in verse 22, now he speaks of our hope. We're to hold fast, hold firm to our gospel hope in Jesus Christ. And I love that he speaks of hope here. We need hope. We live in a very hopeless world among a hopeless people, people who are without God and without hope in this life. And that's what we all are apart from Christ, without hope. You know, in these hard times, we see people 
trying desperately to find some kind of hope, a ray of hope in this life, when in reality they have no hope. They have no hope in God. Many people realize that. Some turn to God, others give up hope altogether. It is a terrible situation for the unbeliever to live without hope. If they have any sense of hope at all, it's hope that is only for this life. That is really no hope. We were made for a living hope, a transcendent hope, hope in God, not in created things, but in the Creator Himself. The psalmist in uh, Psalm 42, and, and it really in so many other psalms as well, faced feelings of hopelessness. That's one example, Psalm 42, we see it in 43 as well. But then he realized that there really is firm hope, a real hope for God's people. And so he corrected himself. He begins uh, exhorting himself. He's preaching to himself in that, that great passage, Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise my salvation and my God. So he's redirecting his own hope. I love that. We have to do that from time to time, don't we? We have to preach to ourselves. We have to talk to ourselves because there's voices coming into our heads from the world and from our own minds that will, that will make us feel hopeless at times. We have to redirect our hope to God, just like the psalmist did there. And think of it, the psalmist only had a, just a tiny fraction of the wonderful revelation of God that we have now in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. The writer of Hebrews has already spoken of our hope that has been revealed, really in all the uh, the, the previous chapters of Hebrews, but especially in verse six, he wrote, or chapter six rather, he wrote, "We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He is our hope, our living hope, a resurrection hope, our living Savior. We have a guaranteed hope of heaven that is grounded in the one who is in heaven now interceding for us. Our hope is grounded in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension back to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to intercede for us as our high priest. That's not a hope for this life. That's an eternal hope, a living hope. Christ is our anchor in heaven. I love that image. You need an anchor when you're out on the waters and the wind and the waves and the storms are raging. We need an anchor in this life when life is raging against us. Christ is that anchor. He keeps us anchored through every wave that crashes against us, every trial, every trouble that this life can throw at us. We're anchored to heaven. We're anchored in him because we're joined to Jesus Christ. We are one spirit with him now. Isn't that amazing? Now and forever. That's the reality for every believer in Christ. We're joined to Christ. We become one spirit with our Lord and Savior. And because he's already there in heaven, we can be sure that he will take us there to be where he is soon enough. In the meantime, while we're here, our anchor holds. We have a firm certain hope of heaven, Jesus Christ. The writer almost seems to be saying, don't worry about the wind and the waves that are crashing. Just hold fast to your anchor. Hold fast to Christ, your hope in Christ, without wavering. Just hold on to Christ, and he will hold you fast. And then he adds, the writer adds, 
He who promised is faithful. So he's got plenty to say about our faith and our holding on to our hope. But here he focuses our eyes on God's faithfulness. And that's so important. That's where our eyes really should be fixed. We have every reason to hold fast to Christ in faith because he is utterly faithful. I think it's really good for us to not focus too much on our own faith. It's better to have your focus on his faithfulness, the faithfulness of God in Christ, his faithfulness to all that he's promised. That's what it's all about. It's about what God has promised to do for us to save us, and it's about what he has fulfilled. He's fulfilled those promises because he's faithful to his word. He sent his son into the world to work salvation for us. And we couldn't do a thing to work it for ourselves. Think way too much, I think, about our own faith and our own faithfulness, both of which are very small, very weak, very imperfect. We should think a great deal more about God's faithfulness, which is perfect, which is great and glorious and complete. That's where your faith should be resting and his faithfulness. This is one of our greatest comforts in life, to get our eyes off ourselves and to get our eyes on the Lord and his perfection, his perfect faithfulness. He's entirely faithful, entirely reliable, worthy of your faith, worthy of your trust, worthy of your hope. You know, we can't say that about people. We tend to want to put our hope and trust in human beings, but that's really not a very wise choice. People are not perfect in their reliability. They're not perfect in their faithfulness. They will let us down. But God and his son are absolutely and utterly perfect, perfect in faithfulness. Everything that he says is infallibly true, and he will back it up. He will not fail to keep his word. He will not wrong us or fail us. And that means we can completely depend on him, completely trust in him without a shadow of doubt, you know, if that were possible. We do doubt, of course, because who we are. It's, that's our weakness. That's our failure. But it's not his. He is beyond doubting. He's beyond failing us. He will be faithful, you know, especially with respect to the gospel. And that the gospel is the context here, as the writer's writing these things. The confession of our hope that we hold fast to and that God will be faithful to, it's about Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have in him by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from our works. God has promised to save every sinner who relies on his Son alone for salvation. He won't break that promise. When you do believe and rely upon God's Son, you're relying on God's faithfulness in that way. The more and more you do that, the more it will strengthen your heart and encourage you, strengthen your faith, and it'll encourage you to live more faithfully to him as well. Keep your eyes on his great, perfect faithfulness. In verses 24 and 25, the writer gives another exhortation. He's in exhortation mode here at this point in, uh, in his letter. He says, let us consider, that's the exhortation here, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Matthew Henry often has a way of just uh, distilling a uh, passage down to just a few sentences wonderfully. He writes here commenting, believers are to consider how they can be of service to each other, especially in stirring up each other to the more 
vigorous and abundant exercise of love and the practice of good works. And he adds, the communion of saints is a great help and privilege and a means of steadfastness and perseverance. This is that uh, one anothering that we hear of often in the New Testament. This is really the only time that this is spoken of here in Hebrews, but it's, uh, it's often in the other epistles of the New Testament. Paul frequently talks about this. You'll see it in those words, one another. Over and over, you'll see it in Paul's writings. It's a, it's a mutual activity that the writer's getting at here. A mutual activity that believers are called to engage in, to stir each other up, to encourage one another. And this is a call uh, to every member of the body, to every believer in Christ, not just to church leaders. This is a call to each and every believer to think about how you can stir your brothers and sisters up and spur each other on to love, love for God, and love for your neighbor, and to good works. And the word actually here is um, something like irritation. Like be willing to be a little bit of an irritation to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's a positive irritation. We don't think of irritation as something good, but this is good. This is a good meaning here. Basically, he's saying, be willing to give a little uh, positive nudge to your brethren when they need it, to encourage them, to greater exercise of their gifts, to greater service, to greater love for God and for the saints, to good deeds of many kinds. Richard Phillips writes, this is not an invitation for us to be judgmental busybodies, making the lives of others a burden. Please don't do that. Please don't read it that way. But it does mandate that we take a lively interest in the affairs of other believers. That's that one anothering. Take a lively interest in other believers. We are to study, it's that word consider, remember, think about this. Think about how you can do this. Study and implement ways to, to encourage others and motivate others to godly living, love and good deeds. What the writer's saying here is that in a very real sense, we are our brother's keeper in the body of Christ. We're not to just be focused on ourselves, not to just be focused on our family or just our, the people that are, are close to us. We should try to, to, to lovingly think about how we can help all our fellow believers along these lines. This could be done in, in lots of different ways. You know, it's, uh, it's a matter of uh, um, thinking about what people need. Be thinking about what someone's going through. Is anybody suffering? Is anybody grieving? Is anybody lonely? Is anybody hurting because of some trial in their life? How could you be a blessing to that person where they would be strengthened? How could you encourage their faith? He wants us just to be thinking about these things, thinking about, man, how can I be a blessing to my brothers and sisters? Or could you talk to them? Maybe someone you haven't talked to before, someone you don't even know. Ask them how you can be praying for them. Check in on them once in a while. Just knowing somebody cares like that goes a long way to strengthen a person's heart and faith when they're weak. And those storms are hitting. You know, it also sets a, an example for them to do this for others, to encourage others, to stir them up. Pretty soon, more and more people will be doing this if we would think this way and do this. You'd see it happening, that one anothering, more and more in the body. People thinking and acting that way, thinking, man, how can I be a blessing? How can I stir my brethren up to love and good deeds?
And that's the idea. More and more people doing this, showing love, encouraging others, and then that leads others to. It's a beautiful picture of how the body should be functioning. And now the writer gets specific here about believers who had fallen off attendance at worship. Some had fallen into a habit, a bad habit of neglecting to meet together. Now, people have all kinds of reasons that they'll give for deciding to stay away from church. That is not new in our day. It's been happening in every day, uh, in the past, in every age. The early church had this problem. That's why the writer's speaking of it here. There were people who were staying away from the worship gathering. And probably that had something to do with persecution, ostracism from family members and the community, and others just flat out committed apostasy and went away from the faith. Well, today, persecution is not as extreme, at least in the West yet anyway, but people still have no problem finding reasons to quit coming to worship. One reason people may quit coming to worship is just laziness. It's hard to get up, gather yourself up, gather your family and come to church. I think it's also spiritual warfare. It's definitely spiritual warfare just to get yourself to church and get your family to church. Satan doesn't care for that. He doesn't want God's people gathering together on the Lord's Day where they can be strengthened in their faith and grow in their faithfulness. There is a satanic and demonic attack that God's people undergo, and I think it's big time on Sunday morning. There's a great temptation to withdraw from worship, from the body of Christ, from the communion of the saints. Forces of evil don't want to see God glorified and worship. They certainly don't want to see God's people praying and God answering those prayers. That causes untold damage to the kingdom of darkness. And that's a good thing. They don't want to see that. They don't want to see God's people gathering together to hear God's word that is going to create faith in hearts that are dead in sin and trespasses. And it's going to build up believers. When the word is heard, preached, people of God are built up in faith, strengthened for that spiritual battle. Those good things happen in a powerful, subtle, but powerful, supernatural way when God's people come together for public worship. It happens in a way that you just don't get in private if you absent yourself from public worship. So it's a dangerous practice to pull away from the church. One commentator, Moffat, writes, any early Christian who attempted to live like a pious particle without the support of the church community ran serious risks in a time where there was no public opinion to support him as a Christian. It's true. It's true in every age. I love that term, pious particle. Can't be a pious particle. If you're a Christian, you can't separate yourself from the people of God. You'll grow weak you'll wither if you're a Christian at all living that way because you're putting it in question, your profession, if you're pulling away from God's people. It's an aberration for a real Christian to stay away from worship. It shouldn't be. Don't do that, the writer's saying. You need the body of Christ. You need the support of the body to strengthen and renew your faith. You need that worship and that hearing of God's word week by week. probably heard the illustration of the burning coal that grows cold very quickly and, and it's uh, flame dies when it's separated from the other coals. They keep them together and they burn bright and hot. Coming together with God's people is like that. Coming together for corporate worship on the Lord's Day. That's the pattern we see in the New Testament. And how else are we going to, to grow in grace? How else are we going to learn to 
to live on the promises of God? How else are we going to learn to cherish the love of God? How are we going to keep our faith focused on God's grace alone that justifies us instead of relying on our own performance? I don't know about you, but I can very quickly go back to thinking that way when I get away from God's word and God's people. It's so easy to fall into that, that self-righteous thinking. That is death. And how will we learn to be worshipers of God, people of prayer? The corporate worship of God's people teaches us those things, and it strengthens us in a, in a supernatural way, a dynamic way that teaches us to live in those. And of course, God has called us to worship him together with his people. We see it here in Hebrews 10, really all through scripture. He's summoning his people Again and again in the Psalms, how many calls to worship can we find there in the Psalms? He summons his people to give him the glory and praise that he deserves. We are a worshiping people. That's what we're to be, if anything. We're his worshipers. That's our identity now, not just his children, not just citizens of his kingdom, but his worship. And it's essential that God be worshiped. He deserves our worship. He deserves all praise and glory. That's the most important reason we come to church to give him the worship that he is due. But of course, he also calls us to worship him for our own good, for our blessing. The Lord has promised to save his people. He will save his elect people. He'll save us to the uttermost. He'll preserve us to the end. But he does that through means. He does that through the means of grace. And the means of grace are what we receive when we're gathered together in public worship on the Lord's day. We need those means of grace. We need them like we need air and water and food for our bodies. We can't live without those things. No one questions that. Well, in a similar way, we can't survive spiritually without the means of grace that God provides. The Word of God, read and preached, the sacraments, wonderful signs of God's saving grace to us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. prayer. We, we add prayer as a means of grace. As a little aside, I'll tell you the Dutch Reformed folks will debate whether prayer is a means of grace. They say, no, it isn't, because it comes from us and goes to God rather than coming from God to us, like the Word of God, like the sacraments as signs. But I'll go with the Westminster Standards on that one and say, yes, prayer is a means of grace because God has to give us His Spirit who gives us a new heart, a heart that wants to pray, a heart that's able to pray and that wants to seek God and to live in communion with him. And now we enjoy that divine dialogue with God as God's people. We hear from him. He speaks to us by his word, together with his spirit. And we respond and speak back to him in prayer. And that conversation, that dialogue with God is our lives. It's our greatest joy as Christians. I hope it is for you. But the point is these means of grace are not to be thought of as some private affair. They're given by God, and His Spirit applies them in a powerful way in the corporate worship setting of God's people. When we're gathered together on the Lord's day, God's Spirit is at work here in a beautiful, wonderful way through the Word and the sacraments, and He's creating faith where there is none, and He's building up faith in the hearts of His people, men and women and children. That's a powerful thing that goes on in churches across the world on the Lord's day. He grows us in grace. He makes us like his son. He's changing us, transforming us, strengthening us against sin and Satan and the world, and so that we can persevere in the faith. Would you miss out on those strengthening blessings? You wouldn't quit breathing or eating or drinking 
we make sure that we've got enough of those things, that would not go well. Neither should you forsake the means that God has provided to sustain your spiritual life. And let me just spur you on a little bit with respect to evening worship. Be a little irritation here for a moment. It's in a good way, though. Just want to encourage you who don't attend to think about attending. You're missing out on the means of grace that would build you up, would strengthen you, strengthen your heart, strengthen your faith, would comfort you. Whatever you need, God's Spirit is at work giving those blessings. He gives them in wonderful, dynamic ways through the, the Word of God as it's read and preached through the, the, the hymns as they're sung, prayers as they're offered. I love the evening worship here because it's, it's a little bit more intimate of a gathering, too. You can offer prayer requests. There's a time to do that. Make known what you need prayer for, and we'll pray for you right then and there. You can choose hymns, psalms to sing. Pretty sweet. In some ways, I like it better than morning worship, though honestly, I'm very tired in the evening. And you're thinking, I'm too tired to do that. We're all tired. But we get spiritual rest through that worship as we gather together in that way. You're going to get a spiritual rest and blessing that you can't get any other way. And we need, we need that spiritual rest at the end of a week of battle. That's why I'm not willing to let PM worship go. Um, you know, most other churches have, probably due to low attendance. This world is hard. This life is hard, isn't it? We have enemies that just beat us up all week long. Spiritual enemies that want to destroy us trials that we go through. We need all the help we can get. We need all the strength that we can get. So a double dose of worship on the Lord's Day to close the Lord's Day the way we open, that's a good, it's so good for us. And our God is so good. It's good to worship. Now some of you live far away. You may not be able to come back at night, and we get that. I don't want to run you off <laughs> at all. We're glad if you can come once. You live, some of you folks live an hour away, and there's always been people like that gathering here. We're so glad for you. you consider joining us through the live stream. We have that option as well in the evenings. That too is a wonderful blessing. I don't think it's a substitute for being physically present if you're able to be physically present, but it's another way that you can really join together with God's people to receive God's blessing. All right, enough irritation for one day. We're out of time. Let's uh, come back and we'll talk more about a few things here at the end of this passage that I'd like to cover as well, Lord willing, next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you so much for the truth of your word. We thank you for the way you teach us. Uh, we thank you for the sure hope of heaven that we have in Christ, our hope of eternal life, the hope of glory. Lord, strengthen us to hold fast to that hope, to hold fast to Christ to the end. And we thank you too for the Lord's day and for the, the blessing and joy of worshiping you together with your people and even the blessing of um, one anothering, stirring one another up to greater love and faithfulness and um, good works, good deeds of service to you for your glory. Lord, apply this word to our hearts by your spirit. Only you can do. We pray these things in Jesus' name.